Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. Okay, I wasn't sure that I'm on the air. I've received several interesting emails, which I want to respond to. And I have a couple of requests from the audience uh, from the last show. If you would like to call with your comments and or questions, you are welcome to call. It's an open mic show, 888-874-4888. Also, you can listen live by phone uh, on the number 641-793-7091. If you cannot or choose not to call, but would like to talk to me, would like to make some comment or have a question, or you have, if you have a request uh, that I address some issue in the following shows, please write to me to Peter, number 18, Resnik, R-E-Z-N as Nancy, I-K, Peter 18, Resnik at gmail.com. Well, first, a little announcement before we start. I used to teach courses in my office. In fact, I developed and taught 34 different courses over the last 40 years. Um, here are some most popular. One is face reading for successful relationships. The other one, using your mind power for healing and health maintenance. Uh, another one, making your relationships work for couples, then making your relationships work for men only, and then one for women only. Another one, master your skills of public speaking. And another one, imagine being fear-free, dealing with fears. Uh, now, as when I have experience of teaching on Zoom, right now I'm teaching a 60-week course for professionals, for health professionals. I started teaching it in uh, last October. So now I'm ready to teach courses to general public. Those courses above are only six weeks course, one hour and a half each class. Uh, which comes to nine hours, as opposed to the course for professional, which is 120 hours. So the first course I would like to teach is Imagine Being Fear-Free. And I intend to start teaching it somewhere in April. If you are interested, send me an email requesting a write-up about the course, and I will gladly send it to you. But I need a minimum of 10 attendees to teach the course. It is also limited to 18 people. That's because I need to be able to interact with everyone. So it's not a course that I teach, like would teach to hundreds of people. Uh, I would rather teach than several courses with 18 uh, people in the class. So that's that works much, much better because uh, the course involves a lot of exercises and I need, or people need my feedback on their experiences. Now, as usual, we'll start with a couple of show and tells. One I found, that, again, my source is my Facebook. I'm connected with a lot of interesting people and they post a lot of interesting things. Uh, Ernst Hemingway uh, wrote, 
It takes two years to learn to speak and 60 years to learn how to keep quiet. I think it's quite wise. I would only add uh, to know when to keep quiet because also there is time uh, when it's important to speak up. Uh, but to know when to keep quiet is for sure very important. Sometimes, in my experience in particular, uh, where because people know what I do, sometimes somebody shares with me, in, in the beginning when I, you know, maybe 30 years ago, even 25 years ago, people would share with me and I would say, well, what about... And then I realized that some people don't want any guidance. They just share. They want to share. They want to be heard. And that's perfectly fine. So now uh, I, if somebody shares with me, I literally will say, are you just venting or you want my feedback? And sometimes in the beginning it was a surprise. People say, no, just venting, just sharing. And that's perfectly fine. Now I want to address something that Daryl from the Bronx asked me to do last week. He asked me to explore the word agape, um, as referred to the uh, New Testament. Agape is, in the New Testament, the fatherly love of God for humans, as well as the human reciprocal love for God. In Scripture, the transcendent agape love is the highest form of love and is contrasted with eros, or erotic love, or philia, that is brotherly love. In the book of John, Gospel of John 3, 16, a verse that is often described as a summary of the Gospel's message. Agape is the word used for the love that moved God to send his only son to the world's redemption. The term extends uh, to the love of one's fellow humans, and the reciprocal love between God and human is made manifest in one's unselfish love for others. Uh, I, many years ago, when my teacher of blessed memory, Colette, was alive, alive I actually asked her, a question. Uh, I said, isn't it true that though many religions, many traditions teach different ways of perceiving reality, the world, and have different rituals, their underlying principle is the same, and that is love. I expected that she would say yes, and she said no, which was quite surprising. She said, not love, truth. I asked her to expand on it. And she said that truth is the foundation uh, of, of human relations. And I said, what, what is truth? And she said, the law. And the law is, of course, the Torah, which means the, the word of God. And so then uh, yeah, she asked me to expand on it. And I realized how true it was. That is, when there is truth, uh, there is order, there is space for love. But where there is just love, there may be disorder. 
and I've seen it as a therapist uh, unfold many times. For example, I saw uh, a mother who absolutely loved what they use now the term unconditionally on uh, her child and gave him everything, uh, always was there for him and loved him so much that when he would um, would be late for school, for example, and uh, he didn't want to be reprimanded in school and she would he would ask uh, his mother to write a note that she took him to the doctor and because she didn't want him to suffer, uh, to be punished in school. So she wrote a note and what he grew up being totally irresponsible. And I know this person for years and I've seen this play out and I've seen many other people uh, thrive on love, but not being honest, not being truthful and eventually collapse, their life would collapse because love could not sustain their relationships. Um, in fact, in, in the course, Making Your Relationships Work, I talk about uh, what is most important for people in the relationship. And very often people say, love, love alone will not sustain the relationship. Uh, women understand it more than men, because I send the questionnaire to men and women separately asking them what is most important in the relationship for them. And women wrote the number one, number one requirement in the relationship is honesty, is truth. Love is, is wonderful, but truth, truth. Anyway, uh, let me move on. Uh, that's regarding love and, and truth and, and the law. Uh, just to complete it, it is still in my mind. Um, a while ago, somebody asked me what is, again, what is the Bible teaching, that the, what, what they call the Old Testament, what's the main teaching uh, of the Bible? And I said, uh, there are four, it's, we have four words, I have four words for it, for the whole teaching. And this one is the Creator, and you heard me probably say it. Uh, but I, I want to repeat it because it's good uh, for those who are interested to remember it. And number one is a creator. The Bible teaches us that the world didn't come into being by itself and didn't come through sexual intercourse, as many other traditions have, of, of something with some, something else. But there is a creator, and before the creator there was nothing. And creator was everything. So there is a creator that um, gave instructions to his creatures. So what number one word is creator, the other one is instruction. And that's the book of instruction, the word Torah means instruction. And what's the purpose of the creator giving this instruction? Uh, that is to create a functional community. And how do you create a functional community? is by setting clear boundaries, setting the law, and people following the law. Love is mentioned many times in the Bible, in fact, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, but that comes after people follow the law. Now, uh, I want to begin to answer emails because they're quite interesting. 
And in the first email, I will want to read to you. The email is from Robert. If you remember, last week, Robert asked me to elaborate on the subjects of greed and denial. And I did it. And if you were interested and you did not have a, ch a chance to uh, to hear that show, I would I would suggest that you go on archives and find last week's show because I did speak in detail about greed and denial. So I think it's worth for me to read for you uh, Robert's email. Thank you so much for going more in depth. I listened once again and took notes slowly stopping and restarting. As a person in recovery from mostly alcohol for the past few decades, I'm constantly searching for clues as to why the culture has become and continues to gain speed, become more materialistic, luck, empathy, and has fallen off any moral slash spiritual path. I'm not an old grumbling guy, just an observer with unending questions. Many of my questions seem to be about why there is not more questioning regarding all the narratives foisted, I don't even know this word, I would say imposed probably, but foisted upon us via media, which is obviously corrupt. The cell phone addiction seems almost totally complete. I live in the area which is predominantly younger people who seem arrogant and privileged. But I see them mostly as vulnerable. God, Robert, <laughs> I agree with you so much. Vulnerable, yes. I have a daughter. Uh, I have a 23-year-old daughter, he writes. Uh, thank you for the, your program. I try to listen carefully. You are a very positive force for me. Thank you for being you. Thank you very much, Robert, for your kind words uh, and sharing your thoughts and feelings. My child, my, young, my younger child, is also a daughter who is 21 years old. Um, she grew up seeing me responding to people who would at times call me late in the evening because they were in crisis. When our children uh, were three and five, their mother and I would take them on Saturdays or Sundays to visit elderly people who were lonely, who were usually in their 80, late 80s or 90s. So both of my children at young age took in this understanding that I, or for me, are not most important things in the world. I'm trying to answer Robert to what's going on uh, in the world now in America. And also the idea, if you want to take, that's very much I, I was interested in promoting and teach, teaching my children. If you are, if you want to take you must be ready to give. I remember when, when my children were young, I drank a lot of water. Why? Because I would, you know, we were watching television or doing something, and my children would play, 
And just when they were involved, uh, totally engrossed in whatever they were doing, not all the time, but often enough, I would say, oh, Hannah or Aaron, can, can you bring for me some water? And in the beginning, the kid would say, oh, well, no, I'm too busy. And, and I would walk over, uh, hug the kid and say, listen, remember how you asked me you needed something? And I did it. I didn't give excuses. Now I want some water. Could you go downstairs uh, to the refrigerator and bring for me this or, or some juice or whatever? And I really didn't want to drink. But my idea was to teach them that they may be interested in something, and yet there is something else, service for someone, that may be more important. And thank God they, they grew up quite uh, quite uh, caring, both Aaron and Hannah, quite caring, not just to their parents or even grandparents, but to many, many people. So I think that's what is missing in this society. But Robert, regarding the cell phones, uh, my daughter shared with me that, that at one point she was totally addicted, constantly watching, looking at her cell phone, and we discussed how she could win herself out of this addiction slowly, you know, making a commitment not to take the cell phone with her uh, uh, to the bedroom when she goes to sleep taking certain breaks because you know you know the world will not collapse if you don't know the news or you didn't read the latest text for for half an hour so but it really takes uh takes some efforts so but thank you robert for writing this email i i do think that most addictions and emotional disorders came into being from the absence of greater meaning uh, Jerry Mender, uh, in 19, I believe 1991, wrote a wonderful book called In the Absence of the Sacred. And he wrote about this people uh, not being connected to what is important, not just to them, but to the community as a whole. Also, if you're interested in exploring literature on the subject, uh, my most favorite author, Maurice Berman, he is a science historian, he wrote many, many remarkable books, and I already spoke to, to you about him you know, uh, a while ago. He wrote a book, Reenchantment in the, of the World. In fact, it's probably his first book. And he wrote there that people felt a part of cosmos, part of the community of greater meaning. They had a feeling of belonging, and it was all substituted by pursuit of more, better, and different pursuit of individual gains. Uh, as Viktor Frankl, and I quoted him also, I think uh, in the last show, in the show before, Viktor Frankl wrote, when a man cannot find a deep sense of meaning, he distracts himself with pleasure. We removed God, meaning, community from our consciousness and substituted it with the pursuit of personal gain. So we need to go back to searching for meaning in whatever form we can find it. But it must be done. Otherwise, 
uh, we we are drowning in this pursuit for pleasure, which eventually stops being pleasure, uh, becomes boredom, no matter how much you acquire, no matter how much uh, you have, it's never enough, and it's always empty. Okay, let me move on now. Uh, I think Judy asked me to talk about five stages of relationships. I mentioned about, uh, I believe in last week or maybe two weeks ago, I mentioned um, five stages in relationship that people need to know of. And uh, these five stages actually are, are part of my course on relationships called uh, Making Your Relationships Work. Uh, but I can, I can mention to you these five stages because I think it's very good to know for everyone. Uh, because we all go through these five stages. I will mention them first and then I will go one by one. The first stage, and by the way, not only uh, individuals go through these stages, uh, not only in the romantic relationships, no, in any relationship, and even corporations, or business people go through these stages. But let's first relate to it um, as, as pertaining to couples. But you will, you will see that uh, any entity, a business entity or personal entity, follows the same principles. The first stage is stage of attraction, then power struggle, it's two, cooperation, three, synergy, four, and com completion, five. So let me talk about attraction. This stage uh, of a relationship is usually characterized by fascination. Fascination with, with the other person or organization or project, a desire to learn more about them, as well as this desire to share about yourself with the other person or people. It's fun and it feels good. This is the time when positive possibilities are, are perceived and explored. This is the stage people wish would last forever. You know, in fact, sometimes when people say, yeah, I love my spouse, but I'm not in love. You know what I mean? Uh, and I, it's sad to hear it when they, I, I say, yeah, I understand. You, you don't have this, what, uh, what George Bernard Shaw called, falling in love is a state of temporary insanity. You want this jittery feeling. But also George Bernard Shaw said, Love, real love, is what is left after the madness of falling in love burns out. So, but a lot of people get addicted to this exciting stage. So, there are things to avoid in this stage. Uh, one thing is, do not rush. Do not rush. Do not try to go to another stage. Do not try to uh, complete kind of this stage by, by saying, okay, 
and now we are together, let's plan our life, let's see what will happen. Just things will unfold naturally. By the way, don't lie, which means do not try to be better than you are. Do not, there is a, there is a quite a, uh, inadequate, I think, or I don't know the better word, expression, putting your best foot forward. My question also always is, what do you do with the other foot? Are you hiding it? Don't put your best foot forward. Just be you. And also don't jump to conclusions. And don't, if it's a personal relationship, don't rush to thinking about uh, commitment. You're exploring. You're just meeting a person. Or if it's a company, you're just exploring and take your time uh, till you are satisfied with this stage. Because the second stage, it's called power struggle. Uh, this is the stage where people start testing each other. It's one of the most difficult stages for people. Uh, who is going to get whose way and how? Distrust from your unresolved past manifests and there is often fear of loss of control and heavy judgments about the, the other person. And you notice it. You, you become aware that you are judging this person uh, as being different from you. But that's why you got interested in this person in the first place. Many relationships never move beyond this stage. And many end in this stage. This stage is really about building trust. Success factor in going through this stage uh, is the ability to resolve problems in the way that both parties win. So then, so if there is a discussion, if there is uh, a, even conflict, you must always think not Okay, I will. I have to get my way because wh why he or she needs to get her way? No, always how both of us can benefit. The second thing is having a predetermined way to address conflicts. Predetermined way to address conflicts. So then, if you if you notice any tension, you you have to make a decision. How if there are conflicts? How will you? you be addressing it together. Uh, and that's true for, for companies. In fact, my, my son owns a company, uh, or it's an academy for pickleball and tennis, and he has a partner. And they had discussion of how they will be addressing different issues that may come up. It's super important. And number three is accepting personal responsibility for, for whatever conflicts arise in the relationship. Power struggle in itself is not bad. And it's inevitable, predictable, unavoidable, and reoccurring. That is, it happens more than once in any long-term relationship. Why? Because each time you increase the commitment in a relationship, that is investing more time, more money or emotion, 
more trust is required. Whenever more trust is required, you will temporarily revisit power struggle. So what to avoid in this stage? Giving ultimatums. I don't want to expand on it. You do not give ultimatums. You discuss uh, issues, again, keeping in mind that you are two adults or five adults, and each has his or her life experience, and they're not less intelligent than you are, or they're less, not less deserving than you are, and therefore you must not only pursue uh, what you feel is right, rightfully yours, but you must remember that this person also must walk away from this argument feeling that they got something out of it. That is, both of you must benefit. Another thing to avoid is don't tell the other what their truth is. Just listen or make them feel that they're not... Uh, uh, talking to a wall, uh, which means you're not paying attention to what they're saying. Pay close attention and make them feel that they are safe with you and they can express their feelings. Again, do not tell them what their truth is. Oh, I know you, you feel this way. And the, oh, I know that's what you want. You don't know. Ask them what is really important to you. So this is regarding... Uh, power struggle. And I've seen, unfortunately, in my office, most of the time when people come for couples counseling, it's because they're in the second stage of relationship. And sometimes it's, you know, they've been married for 20 years. Now, the next stage is cooperation. This is the stage where you learn to trust one another and to resolve a different upsets or conflicts to your mutual satisfaction and benefit. You learn to share power and appreciate each other's uh, gifts and abilities. However, it's still self-oriented. What can I get out of this relationship? Basically, that's what it is. Rather than what can we create with our relationship? Uh, because cooperation, it means I do for you, you do for me. And we do enough, so we feel both good. Be aware of false cooperation in which one person complies with the other in order to, quote, keep peace. This is still power struggle, only in a more subtle form. So what to avoid in this stage? Making assumptions that that's how now it will be it's wonderful, or, okay, this person is this way, and that's how it will be. No. Do not think you know what they want. That's another thing to be cautious about. Just because there is cooperation, always ask. Ask if you're not clear about what the other person wants. Also, do not sacrifice in the name of harmony. It leads to resentment and passive-aggressive behavior. You expect something in return, but they do not know about it. People don't read your mind. 
so you'd get disappointed. Uh, that I've seen women do quite often. If he loved me, he would know. No, <laughs> men are not that sensitive. Women are. Men are not. So most of the time, it's good in a, to inform a person gently of what, what they, what you want. Now the fourth stage is synergy. Ah, this is a stage where there is a realization of uh, power greater than of each individual. There is also a commitment uh, to a specified focus and use of power. Uh, an example, synergy, when parents are arguing and suddenly uh, they see a child fall. There is no, oh, you go and pick him up and I will go get a stroller. No, both plunge, that's synergy. Both love the baby and both, that's synergy. They both are committed to helping the baby. The same thing, even if you don't have a child, your relationship is your firstborn. So when there is a crack in the relationship, both of you must plunge. And hopefully that's what happens on the stage of synergy to protecting your your baby. Uh, it's a stage of satisfaction, intimacy, in, in a deep sense of mutual trust, empowerment, uh, and there is great ease. Uh, it's a highly creative stage, highly uh, congruent. It possesses a high level of acknowledgement and appreciation. The relationship uh, has contains within itself joy and power, and and it eludes. It sends a message to the world. You don't. You you when you meet this kind of a couple, you feel it. It's good to be around them. Now, still, there is something to avoid. And even on that, in that stage, and that is uh, intoxication by this good feeling uh, and the anticipation that will it will last forever. A relationship is a is a a road that is always under construction. You always must be aware of of the need to. Uh, to have everything work out for both people in the best possible way. And also there is another uh, caution, uh, and that is that your life may be become out of balance. You're so thrilled by this uh, stage, by synergy that you forget that there is a world around you, and you forget other people. So your life becomes limited. You forget other relationships. You still have to have relationships, you still have to have your friends. You start neglecting other aspects of your life, that becomes a problem. You also may start thinking, or taking the synergy relationship for granted, and stop practicing what got you to synergy in the first place. So as I said, it's always work on the construction. And finally, the fifth stage, oh, I didn't realize that it would take us 
so much time to talk about it. I hope it's an interesting subject for everyone. So finally, the fifth stage is completion. This is a stage many people fear and avoid dealing with. Uh, and by the way, these stages happen. I give you an example. Within a relationship with any ch change, meaning let's say a couple dated, you go through uh, this courting period, uh, th then you go through power struggle, then you go through uh, uh, cooperation, then you go through synergy, and then you get to completion. And after that, let's say you got married, you go through the same stages. There are two of you, but you're a married couple. And now, then you have a child. It's a whole different ballgame, whole different relationship. You go through the same thing, the same thing with uh, the company. If you have a, build a business, and then you merge with another business, or your company build uh, uh, grew to a certain point. So let's, let me finish with the fifth stage, completion. Uh, there are four ways I th that I know uh, relationships can be completed. They drift apart, uh, or one person is uh, ejected from a relationship, comes out. Uh, then another way is conscious completion. Both parties or many parties that are in this relationship make a decision to end the relationship or death. Often completion is about changing the form of the relationship, not ending it all together. Let's say you, if you were married and you got divorced, you're not ending a relationship. You will be, if you have children, you will be in a relationship to the rest of your lives because you both love your children, hopefully, and you have to interact. So, uh, this, but the same thing, uh, if somebody dies or if somebody uh, moved to another town, your friend, the relationship is completed as you knew it. But now you have to acknowledge it, you let, have to let go of one form and continue a new form and go through the same stages. So that's regarding five stages of relationships. If you want me to talk more about relationships, I will gladly do it in the future. For now, I really want to answer another email. I'm not even sure. It's a huge subject. Um, uh, and that's an email by Ricardo. Uh, you heard me uh, responding to many emails of Ricardo. He, he lives in California. He wrote many emails which are very meaningful ask good questions. And he asked me to talk on the subject that I kind of was reluctant to talk about it. But I, I've, when I started doing this show, I made the commitment that I will speak the truth and uh, answer questions as I know them, regardless of what, what the subject is. So here Ricardo wrote, as a Hebrew, you can explain uh, why Hebrews don't accept Jesus Christ as a Messiah? I always hear Christians claim 
that the man known as Jesus was prophesied in various parts of the Old Testament. So basically, Ricardo asked why Hebrews, why Jews do not accept Jesus as Messiah. But before I begin to answer this, I have to tell you, I love Christian people, uh, as they are now. I'm not going to, to go into, oh, but yes, there was Inquisition, there were Crusades, uh, uh, there was Pio, Pio, Pope Pius XI or twelfth who cooperated with Hitler. That all happened in the past. Right now, all Christian people that I know and Christian communities that I know, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They're loving people, helping each other and caring about others. So, uh, nevertheless, I follow my tradition, uh, but since Yeshua ben Miriam, or as Greek, Greeks translated his name into Jesus, son of Mary, and also uh, Yeshua the Christos, that is uh, Jesus, Christus Christ, uh, the word mis, mis, Messiah was translated into the word Christos, so uh, Jesus Christ. Why Jews do not accept? I will share with you again, I am not a, a master, I'm not a specialist, I'm not a teacher of either Judaism or Christianity. Uh, but nevertheless, I will tell you, um, Ricardo and those who are interested, uh, why, why Jews don't accept Jesus. The idea of Messiah was prophesied in various parts of what the Christian people call Old Testament. The reason it is called the Old Testament is because uh, though the Old Testament uh, is accepted by Christian people as the word of God, that they feel it was the part, so to speak, A, and then the New Testament arrived. Uh, fulfilling what uh, the Hebrew Bible predicted, and that is that, that one day a Messiah will come. The claim, of course, is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the words of God. The evangelists simply wrote down what God dictated to them, just like Moses and the prophets wrote down what God dictated uh, to them. So, so then why, even though there, there are mentionings of Messiah coming, or Christus coming, why Jews didn't accept it? First, there are, let, let me tell you, there is an, uh, several reasons. Okay, if I have more time, I will elaborate on it. I prepared a lot of material, maybe... If you're interested, I will talk about it in the next show, too. N reason number one. Uh, again, how do, how do people know about Messiah? Through writings in the Old Testament, right? So, and the Old Testament predicts, uh, that it states who Messiah would be and what would be happening. How would we recognize that the Messiah came? So reason number one, uh, the Messiah must be from the tribe of Judah and the descendant of King David and King Solomon. 
Jesus did not qualify. They will say, what do you mean? New Testament goes out of its way to demonstrate that Joseph the carpenter was a descendant of David, right? In fact, in the book of Matthew, the book begins with the words, son of David and son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob. But then it says that Joseph is not the father of Jesus, that Mary conceived him without intercourse. God himself impregnated Mary. So Joseph is not the father. The Messiah must be a member of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10. And a direct descendant of King David. Right? Genealogy in the Bible is only passed down from a father to son. The Messiah must be a great grand son of King David. Yet the New Testament claims that God himself is the father. So is God a grandfather of David, a grandson of David? There is no evidence that Jesus really uh, had this pedigree. And the Christian Bible actually claims that he did not have a birth father from the tribe of Judah. That's one reason why Jews do not accept Jesus as a Messiah. Reason two, uh, when the, the Messiah is reigning as the king of Israel, the Jews will be ingathered, that is come from their exiles, and will return to Israel, to their homeland. It's written in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 30, verse 3, in Isaiah 11, chapter 11, verse 11, and in Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 17. So, again, when the Messiah will be king of Israel, all the Jews will gather in. That's what this uh, prophets predicted, and even Deuteronomy says. But Jesus was never king of Israel. And at that time, Jews never gathered in. Uh, reason number three, rebuilding a ho holy temple. The temple in Jerusalem will be built, rebuilt, according to the, when, when Messiah will come, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, is written, when Messiah comes, the temple will be rebuilt. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, it's written, how will we know that Messiah will come? He will rebuild, the temple will be rebuilt. His coming will rebuild the temple. And some people say, oh, no, no, there will be second coming. But there is no prophecy. If you believe prophets who say that there will be Messiah, there is no prophecy that says uh, he will die and then he will come again. The temple was still standing in the times of Jesus. It was destroyed 38 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and it has not been rebuilt yet. The fourth reason that uh, when um, uh, Isaiah says in the chapter 2, verse 1 to, through 4th, and chapter 6 through um, verse 18, that there will be reign of peace when he comes. 
And of course, it never happened. Wars have increased dramatically in the world since the start of Christianity. Reason five, uh, it's also written uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 13, uh, verse 22, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 11, 20, uh, that there will be worldwide observance of the Torah. Worldwide, that everybody will study the Torah. Of course, it never happened. And reason six why Jews don't accept Jesus as a, a Christus, as a as Messiah. Universal knowledge of God. In Zechariah chapter three verse nine, and in Isaiah 40, chapter forty-five verse twenty-three, and in Ezekiel chapter twenty thirty-eight. Uh, verse 23. By the way, if you are interested in checking it out, listen to this uh, record, to the recording of this show again, and check out. It's all referenced accurately. So it, all these chapters, all those verses say that there will be universal knowledge of God. And of course, it never happened. Uh, no matter how many unusual and miraculous things Jesus uh, accomplished in New Testament, it doesn't fulfill even one of the six criteria by which the nation of Israel can recognize him as the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Christian theologists say, oh, that did not happen uh, because there will be second coming, as I said. Uh, the only way humanity was waiting uh, for the Messiah is because it is written in a, in a Tanakh, in the, in the books of the Bible, and they do not mention it, not at all. Finally, there is a, a Matthew, if you look up, uh, you at least jot it down right now, uh, if you look at the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17, and you read there, think not that I came to abolish the law, the Torah, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Whoever changes even one dot in the uh, law or the prophets will be cursed by the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Again, again, at least this you can check, uh, probably if you have the Bible right now, I will repeat. Think not that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Whoever changes even one that in the law or the prophets will be cursed by the kingdom of heaven. So that's what he said. Uh, that's what the gospel teaches. And yet, few chapters later, the same, uh, allegedly, they uh, ascribed it to Jesus, saying that you don't need to be kosher. Uh, you don't need to, uh, to do circumcision, which can't uh, absolutely impossible. The, the Jew, Jesus, could not possibly say this. So if he says that you cannot change, in the change anything in the Torah, and the Torah says you have to be kosher, and, and few chapters later, he's saying, 
Nothing is unclean when his disciples say, oh, no, no, we cannot eat it. This is unclean. This is pork. He says nothing unclean is unclean in my father's home. Wait a minute. He just said a couple of chapters before, chapter 5, that you cannot change even at that in the Torah. And the Torah says clearly you must eat kosher. So what's the story? Is he a hypocrite? Which I absolutely don't think so. Or, or he did say uh, you cannot change anything. And whoever wrote the gospel simply manufactured something else. Because I doubt that the, the observer, the teacher of uh, Judaism, because remember Jesus did not teach to Gentiles. Jesus taught only to the Hebrews. It's uh, Paul, uh, who was originally, uh, I believe, uh, Saul. Uh, Paul exported Judaism to the Gentiles. Uh, so, and it was easier to export it by taking away the restrictions. In fact, he exported it. Remember the, the letters of Paul to Corinthians or to Phoenicians. <clears throat> it was easy to export it to them because uh, they did human sacrifice and it was easy for them to accept the doctrine that a human being was sacrificed. So this is my take on the whole story. Again, you can explore for yourself and, and understand. But what is important for in Judaism, Judaism um, uh, values deed rather than creed, which means how people live is more important than what they believe. So if a, a Jewish person does charity, is a good human being, and he says, I don't believe in God, he's still considered to be a good person, a good Jew because of his deeds. So from uh, because uh, I'm Jewish, I can tell you, for me, it doesn't matter um, what denomination uh, a Christian people belong to, whether they're Protestant, they're Lutheran, they're Catholics. So as, as long as they do good things, and there was, I'm, I know so many beautiful Christian people, God bless them, so they're good human beings. But, uh, and if they choose to believe, uh, in the Gospels, God bless them. That's that's their choice. But I gave you six reasons why I or other Jews cannot uh, accept Jesus uh, as the Messiah. Though for me, he was a fantastic teacher. By the way, every doctrine he taught <clears throat> is nothing new. And most of it was uh, is a part of the Talmud. Uh, he was just was a beautiful storyteller, just like the story of the, you know probably prodigal son, where the father welcomes the son who wasted the money and and became you know homeless and came back and the father welcomed him. It's a story from Talmud, but it's very simply written in Talmud that God loves the sinner more than the righteous. Why? Because God felt the the sinner the sinner who repented that he lost the, the sinner. And then when the sinner repented, then he is so excited, not because he doesn't love the, the righteous, but because he's so 
excited that the sinner came back. But of course, Jesus had a beautiful parable, and he did tell many, many beautiful parables. And I told, I tell the parables. I appreciate his stories. Uh, but that's where it ends. Uh, but if you uh, follow, God bless you again, and I'm happy for you. And that's my answer, Ricardo. I hope uh, it's a full answer for you. And if you guys, uh, ladies and gentlemen, have any questions regarding this again or other subjects, I will be happy to hear from you. You can write uh, emails um, to peter18resnik at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for being with me today. I'm looking forward to having your attention next week, next Tuesday at prn.live. Be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace.